Good morning. Our primary scripture text for this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And I invite you to open your Bibles there. These glorious verses offer a, a really compact description of what Jesus did on the cross and how that ought to affect our lives. It is really a view from the cross telling us that Jesus died that we might live. So please stand with me. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the Word of God. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray. Lord God, it is so good to be here today. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of life. Lord, that we could wake up this morning and that we could be in your presence. And thank you that we could come here today on Easter, on a day that we celebrate the resurrection all about Jesus, all about what you have done. And Lord, may you direct our hearts into your love and into, into focus on Christ so that we would be changed as you use your word in our lives today and we trust your spirit to do a work. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. I have recently started calling Easter the sneaky holiday because Easter sneaks up on you Sort of, kind of, doesn't it? Now, Easter is not as high profile as Christmas, so it, 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 there's kind of a reason, I think, why it sneaks up on us. Uh, but once it's here, it doesn't stay long either. It, it's like here and then vanishes. It is a holiday. It is a, a holy day for Christians. It is a time of remembrance. It is a time of celebration. But God never meant it only to be celebrated once a year. God meant it to be a lifelong celebration, really an eternal celebration. Easter is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it might feel to some people like an interruption or like an uninvited guest, but to those who believe it is the most welcome news ever known. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 explains very clearly and very simply what Jesus did and how his, his death and resurrection ought to affect our lives. How, how his death and resurrection, when believed in, completely reorients the person who puts their faith in Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul was writing for the second time to the church at Corinth, and this was a church that needed to be encouraged to... To depend on Jesus in the midst of suffering. He had written to them once about having unity, and now he is calling them to unity as they serve Christ. What I want you to see in this passage today, this very short passage of Scripture, is first of all, the love shown in the death and resurrection of Christ. Secondly, the work done in Christ. And third, the life given in the death and resurrection of Christ. So the love shown the work done, and the life given. Focus with me, first of all, on the love shown. I want you to draw your attention really to the first and last phrases of this small passage. 
The first phrase says, for the love of Christ controls us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 The cross was all because God being rich in mercy with the love with which He loved us, the great love, the Scriptures tell us, that He so loved the world that He gave His only Son to die on the cross and be raised. At the end of verse 15 it says, referring of Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised. Now this whole scene surrounding uh, crucifixion and the crucifixion of Jesus really shocks the senses. You can watch movies that try to reenact what it might have been like and, and we have to turn our faces away. Crucifixion was used for slaves and pirates and enemies of the state. Practiced by Romans and others between the 4th century BC, the 6th century BC and the 4th century AD. And it was a, um, considered the most shameful and disgraceful way to be executed. In Carthage, crucifixion was the, the established mode of execution. It could even be imposed on generals if you lost an important battle. Now, Cassius, Crassus, uh, the, uh, ten, about 50 years before Jesus was born, one of the wealthiest men in the Roman Empire crucified 6,000 of Spartacus's men along the Appian Way, on the way to Rome, just to frighten other slaves from revolting. So this was a culture of crucifixion, but it still shocks us, and I'm sure it was even shocking back then, because here was the sinless, innocent Son of God being crucified for sins not His own. He was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. So crucifixion shocks us, and the resurrection boggles our minds. Now we know, in this, in this sin-laden world, here on Easter we are, we are dressed up. We, I, 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 I dressed in fancier clothes than I usually do on Sunday mornings, or even on a regular day of the week. And we, we're, we're looking good. We're getting ready to go and, and spend time with family and do all sorts of things today. But in this sin-laden world that we can dress up, we need the news of the cross and resurrection of Christ. We need this message of love. We need this message of hope. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus himself said that after three days, he would rise. In fact, in Matthew 16, 21, it tells us that from that time, Jesus began to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He repeated that same message to his disciples in chapter 17 of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 20 of Matthew's gospel. And then on that first Easter morning, the angel says to the two Marys, Matthew 28, he is not here for he has risen just as he said. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. All because of God's great love. This was the love that was shown in the death 
and the resurrection of Christ. God shows his love for us, Romans 5, 8 tells us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think it's kind of interesting to think about who Jesus might have seen while he was hanging there on the cross. Now we know from the Bible who he saw. In fact, go with me to Matthew chapter 27 in your Bible. Matthew chapter 27, and you can just kind of run through who Jesus saw while he was on the cross. Now, if you start at verse 32, you see that they went out and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Who is they? It was the soldiers. The soldiers who compelled this man to carry the cross of Christ. So Jesus sees the soldiers. Now they got to this place and they offered him wine mixed with gall, but when he refused... Uh, they then they crucified him and divided his garments and they put him between two robbers so he has two robbers that he has seen uh, while he is on the cross who else verse 39 those who passed by derided him so there were just people passing by i mean everyone's coming to see the spectacle three people getting crucified up on a hill those who passed by were were deriding him they were wagging their heads shaking their heads and saying here's what they were saying you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself if you're the son of god come down off the cross who else did he see well he saw the chief priests the scribes and the elders the very people he was doing battle with during his ministry on earth verse 41 the, the chief priests the scribes and the elders mocked him They're mocking Jesus. He saved others. He can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down off the cross right now and save himself. So they're they're basically uh, mocking him. Who else? Look at verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Those are some of the people. If you look over in Luke 23, what you'll see is that in verse 47, the centurion who had been watching, and then verse 48, all the crowds, so there's a ton of people. Jesus is seeing them as he is dying on the cross, and then verse 49 tells us all his acquaintances who had come with him. So all his friends, all the people that were with him, So there are people in the crowd hating him and people in the crowd who are loving him. An interesting one you'll see in John chapter 19 is Pilate himself. He wrote an inscription. It says in in verse 19 of John chapter 19 that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. We would have seen Pilate. The, The inscription read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. People took issue with that. They didn't want that up there. He said, you know what? I've written what I've written. I'm in charge. This is the way it's going to be. So here's all the people that Jesus saw as he was hanging on the cross. That love that that took him to the cross is now in action and he's watching this scene. It's happening to him. Now I think there's there's another group that Jesus saw that wasn't there um, physically, but in one sense, he saw all those who would believe. Go with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. 
It begins in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The idea that Jesus, as he went to the cross, saw physical people and also, in, in a way, saw those of us who would believe that would enter into the joy of their master. But it was all for love, and it, it's just interesting to think about what was going on. You can see this painting of of people looking on as Jesus is dying on the cross. I think it's also interesting to think about what Jesus actually said when he was on the cross. You think about the love that was shown while Jesus was on the cross, as he was dying on the cross. I think of what is known as the seven last words of Christ, really seven statements that Jesus made while he was on the cross. And I just think of the first three that shows its extreme love. In Luke chapter 23, regarding those who killed him, Jesus is praying to the Father. God the Son is praying to God the Father and praying for his killers. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then I think about Luke 23, 43, where he is talking to one of the thieves. And he said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. This, this thief believed the other was casting insults at Jesus. But here, Jesus, in, in, in extreme love, is assuring this dying man that he would be with Jesus after they died. And then you think of John chapter 19 and Jesus caring for Mary while he was on the cross. His own mom. And he says, woman, behold your son. And he's, he's looking at the apostle John. And he says to, the, to John, behold your mother. And he's, he is taking care because of his great love for his mom. So that she would not be left without someone to care for her when he was gone. And it was all for love. His amazing, his Boundless, his condescending, his immeasurable, his everlasting love poured out on the cross. I think about Paul who wrote these words that we're looking at today. Paul, who'd been accused of being out of his mind. They had said, you are crazy, Paul. They said the same of Christ. He said, you are crazy, Paul. Presumably because he went to such extremes to reach people for Christ. That he would become all things to all men, that by some means he would save some, win some to Christ. But the overriding power of Paul's life was the love of Christ. The love of Christ controls us, he says. And this does not refer to the love that Paul had for Christ, which was important but was secondary and really flowed from the love that Jesus had for Paul. So overwhelmed with this love of Christ was he that to serve and honor Christ was his 
deepest desire. It became the controlling motive of his life. It was all due to the love of God in Christ. Paul said the love of Christ controls us. He's not saying he's a robot. He's not, we, we think of it like a remote control and you just make something do something. The idea of this word controls, it means to be hemmed in on all sides. It, it means, it's like the idea of a, perfect, a protective fence all the way around or a, a retaining wall maybe that keeps you, know, you out of the moat that has alligators in it or something. The love that was shown on the cross was deep. Christ was hemming Paul in on all sides. He was really funneling him towards something. This word means to, to hold something fast and to keep something straight. Paul was focused on Jesus. Believers in Christ are to be focused on Christ, and it's all because of his love. Next, I want you to consider with me the work that was done at the cross in the death and resurrection of Christ. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. But what did Jesus do on the cross? What did he accomplish? What happened besides him dying on the cross? Well, we know a lot about this, this side of the cross. But look at verse 14 again of, of, of 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, there is a conclusion that's been drawn. That one died for all, Paul says. One has died for all, therefore all have died. So Jesus died for all. We know that the penalty for sin was paid. We know that the power of sin was broken for those who would trust Christ. We know that new life has been has been purchased to, to redeem. Christ came to redeem all um, those of the elect from lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. We know from Colossians 1.20 that he made peace through the blood of his Christ. So uh, peace with God is now available, is now a possibility. Romans chapter 3 and verse 22 says there's no distinction All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is exempt. There is no one outside of that all. But it says that those who believe are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus purchased redemption to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for Himself a people. But what Paul is pointing out in this passage particularly is this, that there was a substitutionary death, that Jesus died for us. It says one has died for all. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul said, I delivered you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The idea of Christ dying for our sins is that he died in our place. He died instead of us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For us is written in the Scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's code word for cross. 
Now in verse 21 of this same chapter we're looking at today in 2 Corinthians 5, it says this, For our sake. So it's repeating the idea but expanding on it and explaining more. For our sake, He made Him. Who's He and who's Him? The Father made the Son. He, the Father, made the Son to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Those might be the most shocking words ever penned, ever spoken. The sinless Christ was made to be sin. Isaiah 53, 9 said, He had done no violence, there was no deceit in His mouth. It's repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says, You know that He, Jesus, appeared to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, He is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He went in to the temptation without sin, came out of the temptation without sin. Hebrews 7.26 says, Our high priest, Jesus, is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So there's this glorious purpose of the Father's act in making Christ to be sin. What was that purpose? That purpose was that believers would become the righteousness of God in Christ. The math doesn't work on this one. Here's the sinless Son of God becoming sin, and here's sinful humans under the wrath of God becoming righteousness. Through no work of their own, through no deserving of their own, through no merit of their own. It's a bold statement of the nature of the justification. Not only do believers receive right standing, right relationship with God on the basis of faith in the shed blood of Christ. Paul says that righteousness is that which comes through faith in Christ. But here Paul is saying that the believer actually shares in the righteousness that characterizes God himself. This is shocking. This is mind-boggling. In fact, go with me to Philippians chapter 3 and you'll see that even Paul was blown away in a very big way because here's a man who thought he had a lot of righteousness on his own. And he says in verse 9 of Philippians 3 that he wants to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he says that I may know Him, that I may know Jesus and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. This was his desire. This was his, his goal. And here's the, the truly mind-shattering idea. The sin that Christ totally identified with at the cross was totally foreign to Him. And the righteousness that sinful humans receive in Christ is totally new to them. See, Paul says there's been a substitutionary death. That's the work that was done at the cross. Verse 
14, he, then he goes on to say, and, and because one has died for all, all have died. Kind of a confusing idea for us. How is this possible? All who? When? All died. The death deservedly theirs due to sin was experienced by Jesus. Who? Who's, who's sin? All those who believe. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. He wasn't there on the cross. But he basically says, I was effectively there, spiritually speaking, because Christ substituted himself in my place. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It was a substitutionary death. And therefore, all who believe then died with Christ. Not a physical death, obviously. He says that those who live, Paul says those who live, should no longer live for themselves. So you're still living in your physical body. You're still living here on earth. So it's not a physical death like Christ's. But it's a death to sin. It's a death to self that, is, that really is the Christian life. You want a, a summary of the Christian life? Death to sin and self. Which brings joy in Christ. All died. Now, Paul was not saying that all people automatically get forgiveness of sins regardless of their response to Christ. Now, there is to be a universal offer of salvation. We are to preach the gospel to all. But there will be only a specific application of redemption only for those who believe in Christ. Who are then um, identified as the elect because of Christ in them, the hope of glory, and their life that exalts Christ. God in Christ, the Bible tells us, has reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross, and will save all who truly trust in Christ's finished work on the cross. So their work was done, and it was, it was heavy lifting. It was, that's the biggest understatement in the world. What Paul also realized, it became his conviction is that there was a substitutionary death, and because of that substitutionary death, all died. Therefore, his strong conviction was dying with Christ leads to living for Christ. That's the idea that Paul is really putting forth in this passage. Dying with Christ leads to living for Christ. So let's look at the life that is given in Christ. It will, will, this idea we'll spend the rest of our time in. Verse 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Paul says, they who live, here's why, here's why one died for all and therefore all died. The purpose, that they who live, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So love led Jesus to the cross for sinners so that we might live. The scriptures say that we might live through him, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And he, he did this so that we might live with him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10 says, God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is speaking about believers. God has not destined believers to wrath, but that we would obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, again, in our place, so that whether we live or die, we might live with him. And then here, so clearly in in verse 15, that we might live for him. So he died for us, for our sake, and we are to live for his sake. We're to live for the sake of Christ. There is to be no selfishness in the heart of a Christian who grasps the love of Christ. But we all know too well. So often there is extreme selfishness in our hearts. The battle between what we want to do and what we actually do is strong. Again, understatement, but harsh words and unfair judgment and sinful actions abound in the lives of Christians who know the battle of Romans 7. But in Paul's mind, a life of self-pleasing was no longer possible for him because of Christ's substitutionary death, because all died, and because dying with Christ leads to living for Christ. It says in Romans 6, 4, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. But what does it look like? Don't you wonder sometimes? We should. What does it look like to not live for yourself any longer, but to live for Christ? Well, in the context of the verses we're looking at, it's really explained in the next few verses after verses 14 and 15. Let's look at those. Look at verse 16. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What does that mean? Paul is saying that really a transfer has happened. So believers have been transferred from one identity to another. And it's from, they were transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And, and therefore, you must see everyone in light of that new reality in Christ. See, the, the church in Corinth was, was like problem church number one. Problem child number one for Paul. It was always, Corinth is acting up. In fact, when he wrote this letter, he was on his third missionary journey. He had run into Titus, who had sent word about the Corinthians, and so he needed to write him a letter from Macedonia and instruct them on how to have unity as they as they served Christ. People were saying, Paul, you're not a real apostle. You suffer too much. Paul's going, that's exactly what proves my apostleship because in my suffering, I am trusting Christ. So he's writing to them and and they've got these problems and one of their problems, the biggest problem was that believers were judging according to the flesh. They were comparing Paul to other teachers as if it was a competition rather than, than God putting together a team to work together for the kingdom. Some were making unfair distinctions in the church between Jews and Gentiles, between slave and free. Think about Paul himself. Before he became a believer, he had this opinion of Jesus that was according to the flesh. That's why he says we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. He saw Jesus as a pretend Messiah whose followers needed to be killed or jailed. 
Mark out Stephen. Mark out the letters he had in his hand to go and throw Christians in jail. But now he saw Jesus as he truly is. It's like, it's like if you're legally blind and you get new glasses or you get you know, surgery to repair your eyes and you see things you never could see before. New lenses. He saw Jesus as the divinely appointed Messiah whose death brought life. He called Jesus Messiah and Lord. Before he thought he had to do, in Paul's words, many things against Jesus and his followers. So he saw Gentile believers as brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. He saw Jewish unbelievers as without Christ and without hope in the world. A total change. He had been transferred into God's kingdom. Therefore, there can be no false judgment. That's how it is for believers today. Because we've been transferred into God's kingdom, if you want to not live for yourself and live for Christ, there can be no false judgment in your heart. Only two categories about people matter. Believer and unbeliever. Where someone stands with Christ, that's it. Verse 17 Paul says there's been a transformation. There's been a change. What does he say? We know this verse, don't we? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When a person becomes a part of the body of Christ, by faith, there is this new act of creation on God's part. One set of relationships passes away. A new set of realities gets put into motion, into existence forever. Now, most Christians I know don't feel like new creations. Most Christians I know feel like kind of a a beater car. A few dents in the fender, the paint is peeling, the upholstery is is fading. Either that or they feel like a a total wreck. So what does this mean? If someone is in Christ, they're a new creature. Is it just like the first day you, you believe what? Is that what it is? Are we, and then you, so as soon as the paint fades, you just kind of deal with it. What does it mean? We've got to look at Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. Paul says in verse 1, If then you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. And then he goes on in verses 5 through 11 to say, this is what you're to put to death in your life. And, and all the things that, that messed you up before, that the wrath of God, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming on those who won't repent. Make sure that you put, on, t- put off all these sins and then put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. It's like putting on new clothes. Some of you got new clothes for Easter. Looks great. But after today, it's not new anymore, so you can't return it, right? But... 
as God's choly, chosen ones, holy and beloved, com- we are to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and so on. And above all that, love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. There's transformed life. That's what it means. So what, it, what does it mean to, to not live for yourself and to live for Christ if you've been transformed as a believer in Christ? It means you're not going to withhold good from anybody no withholding good you're going to put off the old and put on the new and it's it, it, you're going to do good to all do you know the primary area of change that paul talks about is is an attitude towards jesus and others i've been hammering this one recently because we can't just say hey i love jesus but i hate those people over there see paul's saying knowledge from a worldly point of view has given way to knowledge in light of christ So we've been transferred into the kingdom of God. We've been transformed into a new creation. And then look with me at verse 20, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Paul has now said, look, all this this is from God. God has done this work. It's God's work who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. So he says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So now it's like Paul's turning to those who don't believe and saying, we're imploring you. And God is making a personal and direct invitation through us that you are to be reconciled to God by faith in Christ. I'm going to call that uh, the idea that we are transponders of God's grace. We are transponding the gospel of of peace to the nations. We are representatives of Christ. And by the way, an ambassador is chosen. They don't appoint themselves. An ambassador is sent. They don't send themselves. What did Jesus say in John 20, 21? As the Father sent me, so send I you. I'm, I'm sending you just like I was sent. An ambassador is protected. They're a citizen of the country in whom they're represented. We are, Philippians 3, 20 says, believers are are. are citizens of heaven the goal is to please jesus and be faithful and and to do that what that will look like is that you will trust god to do what only he can do and you will trust god to give you the strength to do what you are called to do but if we are transponding we can't block the signal you know you got those little transponders in your car for the toll roads around here you know, uh, I think it works wherever it is in the car. But there are plenty of signals that can be blocked, cell signals and other signals. You don't want to block the signal of the gospel. You don't want to eclipse the sun. You don't want the Son of God. You don't want to get in the way and make yourself so prominent that no one can see Jesus. No glory stealing in the church. The love of Jesus motivated Paul and his co-workers to serve Jesus out of pure joy for the love that had been shed abroad in their hearts for the work that had been done on their behalf so there's this this life that was given to them so they say the he says the love of christ controls us do you see paul saying this the love of christ controls us here's paul and his co-workers and really all believers not robots but cooperative children of god they're, they're held fast and held straight and confined to a set direction to please God and not themselves. Now as we close, I want you to come back to that last phrase 
in verse 15. Let's come back to that last part of, of verse 15. It says, He was raised. He was raised. Jesus was raised. One of my relatives just wrote this yesterday. I am so thankful to the risen, living Savior. Because He lives, I can have total confidence in His forgiveness, eternal life, and and that He hears and answers every prayer I offer to Him. The resurrection of Christ is what sets Christianity apart. We have a Savior who speaks and moves and guides us daily because He lives. What's this all about today? Easter is all about the death and resurrection of Christ. The love shown, the work done, and the life given through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But as the worship team comes back up, let me just say, that is not all. That is not all. It is also about something significant that we anticipate we are not just looking backwards in time today or even thinking about today and the new life we have in christ if we're a believer we are thinking about christ's promised return this painting a view from the cross the what our lord saw from the cross they've all these people's faces some who loved jesus some who hated him but if you look at at the at the, orig- at, the, at the main picture of it, I don't think it's the one on the screen, that you can see Christ's feet at the very bottom of the screen in, in the postcards we put out. His bloody, pierced feet. And it reminded me of Isaiah 52, verse 7. I want you to hear this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now these words are referred to in Romans 10.15, applied to Christians who are preaching the gospel. But it's, it's applied to Jesus first. And, and here's why. Isaiah 52.8, the very next verse, says this, the voice of your watchmen they lift up their voices together they sing for joy for eye to eye they see the return of the lord to zion it's all it's all easter is also all about the promised return of christ in acts chapter 1 verse 11 the angel says the, to the men of galilee why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 1 Corinthians 13 says we will see him face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him just as he is. This is our hope in Christ. Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, which means listen up, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him. And they will be seen in terror. But to believers, John writes, 1 John 2, 28, little children, tender, dear, loving title, abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. See, the beautiful thing is that his death was beautiful. 
and that his resurrection was beautiful and that his return will be beautiful for all who believe let's pray Lord God thank you for life and eternal life and thank you Lord that according to your great mercy you have caused believers in you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead Lord my prayer is that all who hear these words would place their faith in Christ forever Christ's name, amen.